back. Uh, for those of you who are watching this on a big screen in high definition, you might notice my colorful pillar of Ashok over there. Um, as promised, I did paint it, and it had its debut on the recent episode of the Esoteric Nerd Podcast, which you can check out right over there. Um, basically, I mean, I'm sure you know this already if you've been following this series, but uh, I'm going from the beginning, and in this case, before the beginning of Buddhism, um, forward. So we're going to get into the Pali Sutras next, and then eventually one day in the future when I have a long gray beard, we'll get into the Mahayana, and then mm, later after that, yeah, eventually the Vajrayana. And so occasionally I like to read something else that's not in that sequence. Um, and as I did in, at Bodh Gaya, sometimes maybe I'll just do a special episode on here. But in the case of the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, I want to eventually read the whole thing and make it a series in itself. So that is over on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Does that make sense? Because Vajrayana, of course, Tibetan Vajrayana is, well, a, a lot later than, uh, than, than early Buddhism. So anyhow, how are you guys? I tried to memorize it, but I have my notes here. We have here Pashvanata, Pashvanata, Pashvanata. How to memorize that? Parsh, Parshvanata. A Porsche is not a van. Parshvanata. All right. Sometimes it takes a little uh, um, mnemonic device like that to memorize things. And then, of course, we have Mahavir. Uh, I've heard my wife say that so many times that I can almost pronounce it correctly. All right. Uh, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. This is chai, which you may know from Starbucks or whatever, but chai is the Hindi word for tea. Milk tea, in this case. Usually, that's what it is. Okay, let's jump right in, shall we? Let's make the most of this episode and uh, see if we can wrap up. You know already whether this is the last one, if you read the description of this episode. If it said, we continue reading, it's not the last one, it should be the last one. So I'll get right to it and not dilly-dally. And if there's still time left over for dilly-dallying after I finish, then we'll dilly-dally then, shall we? Um, for those of you who have a very short attention span, okay, now that they're gone, let's continue. <clears throat> the meaningfulness of sequence. So I'm just kidding. I mean, I, I have a short attention span. Who doesn't in this day and age, right? If you're watching a half hour long YouTube video, you're one of the, one of the bright ones. You must be older than a certain age to be able to handle something longer than three seconds. Okay. Since it is the Siddhas, not the Sadhus, the Siddhas. Remember who they are? The liberated ones, I think, right? Right? Yeah. Okay. Since it is the Siddhas who have reached the highest state of unblemished purity, one must first pay obeisance to them. But it is the benevolent Arihantas who show the form of the Siddhas to us 
and reveal the undivided light of truth. Hence, we pay our obedience to them first. Ah, the victors. Remember the victors, then the... I, I forget the exact English translation, but the ones who are all the way there. Okay. In the present day... Oh, real quick. If this is your first time seeing me, click here instead. That's the beginning of this series. Start with the Dhammapada. This will make more sense. If you're definitely here for the Jainism, but you're wondering what the heck it's doing uh, uh, with Buddhism in the title, Buddhist books, Jain sutras, these are two different things, then click here for the explanation. Okay, sorry. Continuing. All right. In the present day, which was presumably 70 years ago or whatever, I don't know when he was talking. In the present day, it is the sadhus, remember those are the ascetics, who reveal the light of truth for us. Oh, that's interesting. Kali Yuga and stuff. Thus, the question often asked is whether one must pay obeisance to the sadhus first. No, don't update 2,000-year-old scriptures. That's like sticking in filioque in the Nicene Creed. God. Romans, right? Am I right? Okay. Uh, to this question, the humble response would be that the ones who have had the discrimination to see the complete light of truth in Kevala Jnana are the Arhantas, the victors. Remember, victorious over desire, lust, greed, ego, so on. That truth, which they experienced for themselves, is only being expounded by the sadhus before the masses. Right, okay. Hence, it is the arhantas who are to be revered even prior to the sadhus. Hmm. Can you imagine if the neophytes taught the classes? Pfft. Anyway, uh, the supreme mantra, next section. The supreme mantra. There is no greater mantra than the Navakara mantra in Jainism. See, they have to put that qualifier there because we all know there's no greater mantra than the Heart Sutra mantra, right? It says so in the Heart Sutra, right? The Jain, I'm sorry, I'm, this is a little bit funny. For people who are just tuning in, devout Jainists who are like, who the heck is this guy? What's he talking about? Hello, thank you, uh, welcome. I'm nobody, just a guy. Thank you for your patience. Okay. The Jaina religion is a religion of great spiritual reflection. Therefore, its mantra primarily consists of spiritual thought. Jainism believes that the Navakara is the essence of the entire Jaina literature. In parentheses, pervas. I didn't make a joke. Okay. It shows the greatness of the impartial thought born from equanimity. Yeah, I like that. You talked about that earlier. And the importance of guna puja, or worship of qualities, irrespective of community, nationality, or sect. Thus, the Navakara mantra, which is the first mantra, of Jaina literature 
is the symbol of this divine equanimity. The reason why the Navakara is known as a mantra is because a mantra is that which protects us from sorrows and suffering when contemplated or reflected upon. Quote, Mantra paramo gyano manana trane hiato niyamat. End quote. The etymol- this etymology of mantra fits the Navakara very well. Disbelief is annihilated by expressing undying faith in the great spiritualists. Not the same as the 19th century people with the seances. Anyway, uh, spiritualists who have crossed the sea of attachment and aversion. Yate, yate, haran, yate. By seeing oneself as inferior to them. By annihilation of disbelief. One's spiritual energy increases. And because of the urge, the surge in one's spiritual energy, all sorrows come to an end. In ancient texts, the Navakara mantra is also referred to as Paramesthi mantra. Those great souls that are steady in their, in their supreme state of equanimity who have reached the highest state of spiritual evolution are known as paramensthis. And the mantra that pays obeisance to these souls is considered as paramesthi mantra. Next section. Supremely auspicious or mahamangala. The Jaina tradition respects the Navakara mantra, as one of the supreme, as, as one of supreme auspiciousness. Ooh, that's a phrase I'm going to be working into my daily vocabulary. Supreme auspiciousness. Cool. Many Akaryas have described the greatness of Navakara. Even the Kulika of Navakara states that it is supreme among auspicious objects, i.e., it is the most auspicious among all mantras that expound the soul's infinite qualities. Mangalanam savesim padhamam havai mangalam. So let us reflect on what auspiciousness is. There are two kinds of mangals. One is dravya mangal, auspiciousness of object. And the other is bhava mangal, auspiciousness of thought. The former is considered to be materially auspicious, and the latter as spiritually auspicious. Makes sense. 
the ordinary man is trapped in the former and thus in the mire of false beliefs. But Jainism propounds that such auspiciousness can easily turn into inauspiciousness. Synchronicity, man. All right. Therefore, auspiciousness of objects is neither focused, i.e. kantika, nor final, at yantika. For example, yogurt and rice are considered auspicious. I was thinking synchronicity. He's talking about yogurt and rice. Okay, just update. Uh, but if yogurt is consumed during a bout of fever, would it not cause more damage? Well, I don't know. I'm very ignorant about yogurt and fevers, apparently. They know this stuff here. It's like obvious, like the things that people consider Ayurvedic knowledge in the West is just sort of like common sense here. Anyway, so I guess uh, if you have a fever, don't have yogurt. That's uh, wisdom from, from India, apparently. Okay. <clears throat> if the grains of rice that dot the forehead, along with the vermilion, as a sign of auspiciousness, fall into the eye, is that not harmful to the eye? Probably. Uh, in this manner, auspicious objects can turn inauspicious in a fraction of a second. Hmm. Okay. Therefore, a true aspirant must stay away from focusing on auspiciousness of objects and instead adopt auspiciousness of thought. The Navakara mantra is auspiciousness of thought. It is connected to the inner world and protects the aspirant from all kinds of sorrows. Auspiciousness of thought can be experienced through many channels, such as chanting, penance, knowledge, vision, prayers, obedience, and adherence to rules and regulations. All of these, which arise from auspiciousness of thought, lead to emancipation and are therefore focused and conclusive, or ekantika and atyantika. It is from this standpoint that akara, akarya, jin, Adasa has defined the etymology of the word Mangala as follows. Mangam Narakadisu Pavadantam Solati Mangalam Lati Genha Iti Vutam Bhavati Dasa. Manga means hellish. And that which protects us from hell is mangal. Okay, mangam. Oh, mangal. Protect from hell, mangal. Wow. And it's translated as auspicious 
or Mangalam is translated as auspicious. Mars is also Mangal. That's interesting, right? Anyway, before commencing any auspicious task, one must create auspiciousness of thought by reciting the Navakara mantra. It is the king of all auspiciousness. Therefore, all other auspicious objects of this world are but slaves to the king. In the eyes of a true Jain, how can auspicious objects have much significance? The nine padas, or navapada. Navakara mantra is known by other names, such as Namaskara mantra and Paramesthi mantra. But since this mantra has nine lines, it is popularly known as Navakara. I was wondering about that. Okay. All right. The first five are the primary padas that pay obeisance, obeisance to the five Paramesthis. And the last four are those of Kulika, which describes the rewards the soul gets by meditating on the first five padas. There is another tradition, which propounds that of the Kulika. Namo Nanasa means obeisance to knowledge. Namo Dananasa means obeisance to vision. Namo Karitasa means obeisance to conduct and Namo Tavasa means obeisance to penance. With the help of the Kulika, the aspirant climbs the spiritual ladder. Become Arhantas, right, okay, and thereafter attain the position of the eternal immortal Siddhas. By paying obeisance to knowledge, vision, conduct, and penance, Jainism has expressed the importance of guna puja. Therefore, the importance of sadhus and other padas is not because of the individual, but by virtue of his qualities. And when this sadhana is complete, then the aspirant reaches the divine state of Arhantas and Siddhas. Let us look at the nine padas in detail. In detail, I just thought I'd sound pretentious. <clears throat> nine, the number of accomplishment. In Indian tradition, the number nine is considered as the symbol of Aksaya Siddhi, or everlasting accomplishment. Sidebar, something auspicious happened to me the other day yesterday and the day before, and a week ago, I saw that pillar. Let's just go ahead and... I'm not wearing my bottom part of my robe today. I apologize. And it looks ridiculous in the back, so I'm going to just... <clears throat> so that's why that was cropped. Anyway, um, so yeah, here it is. I painted it. 
And here's a little bit of uh, the the Esoteric Nerd episode from yesterday. Yeah, okay. So that was cool, but, you know, the whole thing is better. I'll just show you a tiny sample of it in that uh, flashback. So I got this uh, in... in Rajgir, there it is. Uh, I got this in Rajgir, and I thought, hey, I'm going to paint that in the style of Tibetan temples, and uh, and and you know, uh, show it at the beginning of an episode where I read the next part of the Padmasambhava book, right? What I didn't know, so then I painted it, and I painted these colors according to the directions of the five Dhyani Buddhas, uh, Amitabha, uh, Akshobhya. And so on, right? Ratna Sambhava, Amogasiddhi, and Vairochana is missing. He's in the middle. But anyway, um, what I didn't know was that Canto Number Four went into their lineage, who their parents were, their mother, their father, which caste they were, what their real name—I mean, what their birth given name was, what their prayerful name was—and then the fact that those were the names that were given to them when they attained Buddhas. I didn't know that at the time that I made the decision to paint this and then to put it on display and, ex and talk about them and their positions before reading. About them. Wild, right? Also, I decided to make these little squares and divide, just kind of eyeball how many of these would be a good uh, you know, number to have. And uh, guess how many it is. Can you count them? Can you see them? Nine. Now, of course, I come from a different tradition, a Western-based tradition, where 10 is an important number. And I thought, well, maybe this is like the, this is the, represents Keter, and then these are the other nine, or something like that. You know, I don't know. I had, I wasn't sure. I was like, nine, huh, why nine? And so it's just interesting that today I'm reading this, and yesterday, um, yesterday it was all about the, uh, the five Dhyani Buddhas and their origins. Just interesting coincidences auspicious synchronicities. Okay, let's get back to it, shall we? The other numbers are not imperishable, and they deviate from their true form. I usually do wear the bottom part of this robe. I just decided not to today. I was lazy in the camera. Now, a lot of people go on Zoom meetings just wearing the top part of their business suit, and underneath, you don't even want to know, right? I assume a lot of people do that. Everybody Nobody does that. I don't know. Somewhere in between those three. Okay. Got to make it a little silly, right? The other numbers are not imperishable, and they deviate from their true form. But the number nine always remains indivisible and eternal. That's true. When you're doing uh, that kind of numerology where you do birthdays, you can just cross out the nines, because anything plus nine then added together equals nine. Here's an example. 59. 5 plus 9 is 14. 1 plus 4 is 5. You could have just crossed out the 9. You didn't need to go through that whole process, right? So, anyway. Um, but the number 9 always remains indivisible and eternal. The basic example of the multiplication table of 9 proves this point until you get up past 100. But anyway... Uh, multiply 9 by any number and the sum of the digits will ans in the answer will total to 9. Let's try that. 9 times 587,600,000. You see what I mean? But yeah, when you're below 10, then that works. 
below 11, right? 99. Oh, hey, wait a minute. 99, that reduces to 9. Okay, 11, what about 12? 12 times 9, 108. Oh my God, they're right. How far up does that go? Does that go up really high and I just didn't realize it? Hmm. Well, all right then. I stand possibly corrected. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the basic example of a move up. Multiply 9 by any number, the sum of the total digits will total 9. 9 plus 9, 18. 1 plus 8 is 9. 36, 3 plus 6 is 9. 45, 4 plus 5 is 9. You following? Okay. Oh, it goes on. 54, 5 plus 4 is 9. 63, 6 plus 3 is 9. 72, 7 plus 2 is 9. 81, 8 plus 1 is 9. 90, 9 plus 0 is 9. This simple mathematical process gives a perfect analogy of the immortal nature of 9. You've seen Lord of the Rings, right? Okay. Uh, interested scholars may read the author's Mahamantra Navakara. There was another nine. The nine. I mean, there's the ones from Lord of the Rings, but there was another group of nine. Oh, I wish I could remember what it was. It kind of made me go, huh, hey, hey, nine? Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, the show I'm watching right now, um, Krakow Monsters. It's pretty cool. Okay, it's on Netflix. It's worth seeing. Not, you know, if you have small kids, maybe after they go to bed. All right. Um, this simple, the dubbing is pretty good too, English dubbing. Okay, this simple mathematical process gives a perfect, it, yes. And interested scholars may read the author's Mahamantra Navakara for in-depth analysis. Maybe it goes up to 11. Uh, the eternal resonance of the nine padas of Navakara signifies that just as n number nine is undivided and eternal, the aspirant who worships the Navakaras of the nine padas attains an immortal, eternal state. The worshiper of Navakara mantra can never become weak or inferior. He will always remain a progressive traveler towards liberation and emancipation. Now, because uh, the Beatles have a tight grip on their copyright, um, I'm just going to point here. Okay, but for later. All right. All right. Rather than playing the audio and getting this blocked. Nine, a symbol of spiritual progress. The multiplication table of nine leads to numbers such as nine, 18, 27, 36, 45, 54, etc., up to 90. Among these, the first number is the undivided nine, which cannot be broken. What? It is a symbol of Sida. Does this count as uh, auspiciousness of thought? Or Among the next numbers, each one has two digits. The first digit is a symbol of purity, and the second one of impurity. Hmm. All the ignorant beings in this world are in the state of 18. And in them, I didn't know they were like Kabbalists, uh, in, and in them, one represents a small fraction of purity and eight represents the extent of impurity. From here, the life of spiritual practices begins. 
With a little sadhana of right knowledge and vision, the soul gains the number 27. Oh, oh, hey, hey, okay, okay, I see where they're going with this. It's a little like 1 equals 10, 2 equals 9, 3 equals 8, until you're 5 equals 6, then 6 equals 5, in which, and then you're supposed to be an asshole for several years until you finally get to wear that 4 equals 7 robe, and then are you... You're going backwards? Oh, yeah, no, then you have more numbers in the... You have the higher number in the... Okay, anyway. 27. The implication is that the extent of purity increases to 2, and the impurity reduces to 7, until finally you're epissimus. That's how it's pronounced, right? As Sadana... Sorry for those who have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm talking to a very... Of the three people that are going to watch this video, I'm talking to half of one of them. Um... As sadhana increases, the digits of purity become higher and those of impurity reduce. In the end, when sadhana reaches its culmination, the number 90 is attained. Then 99 comes next, but we're just going to forget about that because that would be Zoroastrianism, which means purity reaches its undivided state of 9. The And impurity is nowhere to be found as in zero. In this manner, the aspirant who recites Navakara mantra with a pure heart evolves like the multiplication table of nine. See, I knew there was some BS in here somewhere. <laughs> Sorry to the Jainists watching. That's not a word, Jainists watching. I'm just making fun. I'm not talking smack. Um, everybody's got to have a little BS in their religion, right? Right? Um, okay. And reaches the Sita state. Okay, like the multiplication, yes. In this state, only the pure form of the soul remains. The fragments of karmic blemishes get destroyed forever. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's the end of the section, and we're right at 31 minutes. Wow, I wasn't sure if this was going to be a long one or a short one or what. But this was the conclusion of the Namaskara Sutra portion of the Jayan Sutras section of Edward Reed's Buddhist Books podcast, which is one of uh, my podcasts. All right. Whoa, how did I get over here? Um, sorry about that little blip. That was an auspiciously timed uh, running out of space on my phone. I, I, I've been recording too many things and not paying attention to the amount of space that I have left on my phone. So anyway, that's what that was. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna repeat stuff that I've said before. Um, I can see where elements of this kind of informed the things that Lord Buddha sort of wanted to update or disagree with. Uh, but I can also see where and a lot of it kind of went into the basic assumptions uh, that, that, that Lord Buddha was working with in developing um, or, you know, attaining or however you want to frame it, look at it, describe it, uh, the philosophy which he was expounding after he had his enlightenment. So, yes. Thank you to the uh, Virayatan um, Society or Temple or 
nah, I won't say cult. No, I'm sure they're fine. Um, you know, that word can be a good thing, right? I mean, it, it used to be. Um, thank you to Upad Yaya Amar Muni uh, for, I pay obeisance to you for your wisdom and for your uh, explaining of, of, the, of the Namaskar Sutra. It's very nice. Okay, I'm going to stop babbling now since I don't really have anything to say at the moment, um, except for do check out that episode of the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Um, it, Padmasambhava Part 2 it's called and you can see the rest of that uh, thing about this uh, column it's at the beginning of the episode and we are this far through the Jayan Sutras I will continue reading shortly if not tomorrow then surely the day after and uh, then we will move on to eventually we'll move on to those Pali scriptures thank you all for tuning in um, do like, subscribe, and share with all your friends. Uh, feel free to comment below and say hello if you'd like. And again, I apologize to the people listening on the podcast that I uh, keep assuming that uh, whoever I'm talking to is watching this on YouTube. I acknowledge you listening to this, and I thank you for, uh, for wearing those headphones or listening to this on your car stereo or whatever is happening. Um, and, uh, and I wish you all a wonderful day. Blessings to you, and I'll go ahead and close with the usual uh, prayer that my father and I performed at the end of our morning meditations. Okay. To the north and to the south, to the east and to the west, to the spirits of light among us and to the spirits below, we send out our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings be in peace. Oh. Until next time. Oh.